Good morning to everyone. It's a, a joy to be back with you. It is good to be with you again. Um, our church continues to be in prayer uh, for you, for the Lindblads, and uh, for your church as a whole, and it's a joy to have our, uh, our dear fellowship in the gospel together. You can turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew and chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This morning we'll look at the champion of the desolate wilderness in verses 1 to 11. And when you find your way to Matthew 4, we can actually back up to Matthew 3.13. So we'll begin reading there as the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ is certainly connected to what follows here in the testing in the wilderness. So this is Matthew 3 beginning at verse 13, the word of the triune God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Amen. Well, let's go to our God again in prayer. Our righteous God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this opportunity to gather together as the saints of Christ for worship of our blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do pray once again that you would help us, that you would assist us by your Spirit in this act of worship, the preaching of your Word. We do pray, Lord God, that you would give us that wherewithal to be focused upon the preaching of the word, that we might see our God, that we might see our blessed Christ, and that we might rest in the hope that is in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the hope that is in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and in the blessed truth of the blessed gospel of our glorious God. And we do pray that you be with us now. Help us now to be worshiping you continually in spirit and in truth, and to be singing the praises of amazing and victorious grace. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we do pray. Amen. Well, there was something in the ancient world called uh, single combat, where two champions from opposing ar- armies would meet in the gap, would meet in the, in the lists, it would be called, and they would uh, come together to perhaps 
solve the battle without the shedding of much blood and other sorts of things. We have fanciful accounts throughout history, some true, uh, some with truth mingled with fiction and that sort of a thing. And we do have a blessed, uh, a blessed case of this in our own scriptures of the certain and true variety where David met Goliath in the Valley of Elah where the servant of the God of the armies of Israel came up against the roaring Diabolus Uh, that is Goliath, in the Valley of Elah and prevailed over him. We have these blessed, excellent scenes in our Bibles that show forth the unyielding triumph of God's servants over wickedness. Uh, We have examples such as Elijah over the priests of Baal, or we should say the God of heaven and earth by his servant Elijah over the priests of, uh, of Baal on that mountain. Again, David over Goliath. And this scene before us, sets forth Christ, the greater than Elijah, David's greater son as the one who triumphs gloriously and victoriously for us over the devil and in service to his father. So we want to look at verses 1 to 11 uh, under three heads. That is the victory of, uh, that is, excuse me, the setting of the battle, the combat in the wilderness and the victory of the son of God incarnate. Now, The intent of the sermon will not be, of course, to moralize the testing uh, of this desert scene, but rather to set forth Christ and cheer our hearts with the knowledge of him who is our champion and the vanquisher of evil. We want to look first off then at the setting of the uh, the setting of the battle, and I'll try not to spend too much time. I know I went overtime last time, so I'll try to be a little more kind to you um, in uh, in this act of worship, the preaching of the word. But we want to set up the battle by looking at the setting of it. The setting is not random. Uh, the setting is not uh, it's not random. It contains recognizable elements. Uh, we're within the bounds, I believe, of the divine. Uh, design and intention to recognize the connection between Adam, the first Adam in this uh, particular scene, as well as to Israel. Now, certainly Elijah and David, and we'll look at that, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to remark that the chief end of the evangelist is to set forth the last Adam and the true Israel as the one who vicariously perfects obedience for his people. Now notice the timing of the temptation as we look at the setting here, the timing of the temptation in in two simple words here, then Jesus. There's a connection here in verse one that connects this testing in the wilderness to what preceded it. That is the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an an immediate timing. This episode follows his baptism and marks his entry into public ministry. Prior Prior to this, the Lord's ministry was not Public. He's baptized by John the Baptist uh, in the River Jordan. As we see here, it's of course not for the forgiveness of sins or for the remission of sins because Jesus Christ is holy, harmless, and undefiled, the blessed, sinless one. But it is so that he might, that we might, uh, Christ says, to fulfill all righteousness, or rather, thus it is fitting for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And so this marks Christ's entrance into public ministry, this baptism in the Jordan, and then he is immediately driven out into the wilderness uh, by the Spirit, which leads us to the next point. So we have the timing of the temptation, again, very simply, immediately following the baptism. And then secondly, the Spirit in the ministry of Christ. Notice the language, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. 
The, the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is a truth that we must always remark with joy after. The Spirit was uh, powerful in the ministry of the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Our confession uses the language that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His human nature, thus united to the divine, in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed by the Holy Spirit above measure. The, the, the confession simply simply summarizing the biblical language, even Christ himself speaking, that the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him in his incarnation as he goes about doing good, as he goes about that obedience unto cross, uh, unto cross death work. And so here we have the Spirit leading Christ into the wilderness. That same Spirit who had beforehand descended as like a dove, alighting upon him at his baptism. We need to note, though, that this isn't the first entrance of, if I can use the word entrance, this isn't when the Spirit now comes upon the Son uh, in his incarnation. It is, a, it is we can say, from, uh, from conception uh, unto death that the Holy Spirit is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see, though, something pointed with respect to the Holy Spirit, though, regarding Christ's entrance into public ministry. This was, as Owen notes, a visible pledge confirming Christ's divine calling and inaugurating his act of public ministry. The Spirit, of course, was upon him from the outset of the incarnation. The Spirit serves here in this specific text as the driving impulse of action, leading him out into these, these desolate outlands. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. The language of Mark 1-2 is, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's very interesting, commentators know that this language of drove is the same language used of God driving Adam and Eve from out of the garden. God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. Here, the last Adam is driven not out of a garden or not into the wilderness because of his own sin, but rather in the perfection of his divinity and humanity, he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness so that he might reverse the curse. The, he comes to make his blessings flow, as we sing often, far as the curse is found. So Adam is driven out of the garden due to his disobedience, Christ is driven into the wilderness in order to show forth the blessedness of his perfect obedience. So the Spirit serves here as the driving impulse. The last Adam is driven into the cursed wilderness, not for disobedience, but in order that through his perfect obedience, he might reverse the curse of sin and death. You see, these passages, it's not simply a narrative for us just to remark, oh, isn't it interesting that, that such and such took place? But we are to remark, we are to observe, we are to cheerfully witness the consent of all the parts of Scripture as the Bible sets forth to us from Genesis to Revelation, Christ upon the cross working out the salvation of men. We have in our, our confession of faith a very interesting and, and beautiful language with regards, with regards to the, mark, the marks of Holy Scripture. The, the heavenliness of the doctrine, the, effic or the efficacy of the doctrine, the, the heavenliness of the matter, the majesty of the, the style, the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. And as we dive into passages like this, as we dive into the Bible, we're not just to see superficial narrative, 
but narrative deep with theological richness. And in this case, of this specific point, the last Adam reversing the curse of Adam the first. This is the language of Sinclair Ferguson with respect to this particular text. Noting that Mark, uh, noting Mark's language when he's speaking concerning uh, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Why should Mark alone mention that Jesus was with the wild animals? That's a verse 13 of Mark 1. Very interesting uh, language with regards to Christ being with the wild animals. The first Adam was placed in a garden with animals that he lived in peace with and that he named. Now Christ is driven out into the desolate outlands with the wild beasts. Jesus Christ came, this is Sinclair Ferguson again, to be what Paul called the last Adam and the second man. He came to undo what Adam had done by his sin and fall. But if he was to reverse what Adam had done, he needed to enter into the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam had left it. So when he was tempted, he was not in a garden like Adam. He was not like Adam surrounded by animals over which he had dominion. It was in a fallen, broken, sinful, disintegrating world that Jesus faced temptation and the powers of darkness in order to win for his people a way back to the tree of life. The blessed richness of this passage seen in the champion of the desolate wilderness reversing the curse of sin and death incurred by Adam the first. Now notice the location of the temptation. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness. So we're continuing with the setting of the battle. There is obviously, there should be, if we know our Bible, something very, uh, uh, very recognizable about the wilderness in biblical history. Our minds should be drawn to the wilderness wanderings of Israel, no doubt. But it is into the wilderness that the Spirit drives the Son of God incarnate. And this is further into the wilderness. Um, they were already in the wilderness of the Jordan, when they're being baptized, when Christ is being baptized here by John the Baptist. Uh, but we want to note that, so is this the same wilderness? No, it's being driven out further into the wilderness because remember the spirit is driving him into the wilderness. So it's not in and around where he was already in let's say the habitable wilderness, but this is now driven out into the inhabitable wilderness. And we want to note here that this is, it very well could be, as commentators note, the same wilderness as the wanderings of Israel and that of Elijah's fast. And so there is very rich significance here and connectedness to Israel in the Old Covenant and Elijah. As we move on for the setting of the battle, we want to note fourthly, and there's just one more after this before we move on to the combat proper, but we want to note the condition of Christ in the temptation. Notice the language uh, of the text. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. There's something very significant here with respect to the condition of Christ in the temptation. In addition to him being alone in the wilderness, away from all assistance, the incarnate Son of God was without the sustentation of food. There are two important elements here that we'll, that we'll see here uh, in a moment. Two important elements. First off, he was alone. And we, we are to have our minds drawn to the fact with this that it is in Christ alone that we have our salvation and our hope. He is here without a helper. 
He is here without assistance. Yes, he is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, but it is the Son of God, it is the Son of God incarnate here, according to his assumed humanity as he goes up in battle against the devil in our stead, in our place, and to reverse the curse of Adam and to be the true Israel. So he is alone in the matter of salvation. When we think about our own salvation, our minds ought to be drawn to the fact that it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that from first to last, midst and throughout, saves us without a helper. And Jesus Christ here is in the wilderness all alone because he is alone our champion. He is alone our savior. He is alone the captain of our salvation. And he is without food, which is very, which is very important as well. It is similar to David. Remember, we noted that this is something of single combat, if you will. Calvin notes this. It ought to be observed at the same time that the Son of God voluntarily endured the temptations, which we are now considering and fought, as it were, in single combat with the devil. Note that by his victory, he might obtain a triumph for us. And so similar to David going up against Goliath, remember David doesn't wear Saul's armor and doesn't bear the weaponry of battle. He sheds the armor. He doesn't take sword and spear and shield and those sorts of things, but he gets those five smooth stones from the brook and armorless, he goes alone to face that wicked adversary in the Valley of Elah. Well, similarly, Christ here goes without armor in a sense and without the sustentation of food to show forth that he is in an essence weaponless and will win the battle without assistance. Lancelot Andrews notes the place, the lists, that is the gap wherein they are fighting, the wilderness that so he might be alone and that there might be no fellow worker with him in the matter of salvation, that he alone might have the treading of the winepress. So in the transfiguration in the mount he was found alone, So in the garden, in his great agony, he was in effect alone, for his disciples slept all the while. That unto him might be ascribed all the praise. Christ is alone in the wilderness, fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He is hungry, and he is, in essence, weaponless. And this is for the purpose that unto him might be ascribed all the praise. Our blessed Savior going up against the father of lies and murder in the desolate wilderness. Lastly, under the setting of the battle, we just want to note here the significance of the temptation. Backing up to the language in verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the world, into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. That last clause, to be tempted by the devil. There is something thematic here. There is a divine purpose in this particular episode in this scene. Remember, it's not random. This isn't haphazard. First off, Jesus was led by the Spirit, and that leading by the Spirit is unto a particular divine purpose for the Lord Christ to be tempted by the devil. And this tempting by the devil is a testing by God that the champion Jesus Christ might be shown forth as the last Adam who reverses the curse of the first, and as the true Israel who is obedient, where Israel the first was disobedient. 
So it's something I think, as we noted earlier with regards to the, the blessed quality of our Holy Scriptures, remember that the divine author is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in setting forth to us this revelation to the sons of men, he is showing forth the scope of the whole, giving all glory to God through the perfection of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a consent of all the parts character to the scriptures. And where I am going with this is that in Jesus Christ's uh, mediatorial mission in this lower world, where the Son of God had assumed our humanity for our redemption and rescue, we have a blessed new exodus going on. You'll remember that in the old exodus, there was a coming out of Egypt. There was a journey through water. There was a hearing of God's voice and there was a leading into the wilderness for a testing. With the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a coming out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. There is a through water journey, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a hearing of God's voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there is now a testing that follows the declaration of the father. So similar to Israel in their wilderness wanderings and their redemption out of Egypt, we have here this blessed new exodus in our Lord Jesus Christ, bringing the perfection of redemption. Now, just before we move on to the combat in the wilderness, if you can turn with me, if you're willing and able to turn to Deuteronomy 8 for a moment, as we're noting the significance of the temptation, we want to certainly find ourselves in covenantal realities. We want to find ourselves with this Old Testament linkage and the link between Israel and Jesus Christ. There is a probative context to this particular scene. That is Christ's probation, if you will, to be the last Adam, to be the obedient Israel who is uh, who perfectly and vicariously perfects obedience for his people. Notice Deuteronomy 8. And this is in the background, uh, a lot of Deuteronomy, but one of the verses, uh, one of the texts here is Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 1. Notice the language here given by God. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger. Notice this linkage here between Matthew 1, uh, 4, 1 to 14 and this hunger. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments did not wear, uh, did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So Israel was tested in the wilderness. Israel was made to be humble in the wilderness. They were made to hunger in the wilderness. And they were such to know that it is God who providentially cares for his people. So there is this testing context in the backdrop with regards to the Lord Jesus Christ here as the true Israel. And so this brings us then to the combat proper. The combat 
in the wilderness. That serpent of old who tempted the first Adam, here tempts the last. This temptation we want to note, before we look at some particular points, this temptation was physical and real. This wasn't, as some liberal liberal commentators might remark, just some, well, first of all, they would say that this really didn't happen, that this is just some sort of, you know, metaphor, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, some sort of nice parable or story to to teach us certain things regarding, um, you know, fighting against temptation and certain ills. Um, That's madness, uh, of course. This is true narrative. This is true history. And the temptation that now the Savior goes through is physically real. It's not through an invisible operation upon the mind, though that may have been the manner by which the devil tempted Christ for the 40 days and 40 nights. Remember, with the text, uh, with the, um, uh, the other evangelists' accounts in our Bibles, The Lord Jesus Christ was tempted 40 days and 40 nights. So it may have been with this invisible operation upon the mind, as Gill notes, uh, during those 40 days and 40 nights. But afterward, he was hungry. Verse 3, now the tempter comes to him. And this temptation is physical and real. It is not wrong here to see again that, that single combat now. Like David and Goliath who traded battle words in the Valley of Elah, The Son of God and the Father of lies here exchange words in the wilderness. Three times the devil comes with forked tongue and dastardly intent, and three times our champion Christ with a a resolute determination, wielding the sword of the Spirit, dashes away the, the prince of darkness. To set the stage here, this is a wonderful, a wonderful quote by C.H. Spurgeon on this very scene. Oh, how wonderfully did Christ fight the tempter. Never was there such a battle as that. It was a duel foot to foot, a single-handed combat, when the champion lion of the pit and the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah fought together. Lamb of God, I will remember thy desert strivings when next I combat with Satan. When next I have a conflict with roaring Diabolus, I will look to him who conquered once for all and broke the dragon's head with mighty blows. So first off, we want to note the first temptation. The way that we're going to look at these three temptations is the villainous temptation on the part of the devil and then the steadfast response on the part of the champion, Jesus Christ. So the first temptation is that the devil is calling upon the Son of God incarnated to reject confidence in God and in His divine provision. So if we ask our questions, and we should, uh, we should ask the, the question, what is the purpose of this first temptation? It is that the devil is calling upon the Son of God incarnated to reject confidence in God and in His divine provision. So notice the villainous temptation as we move back to the text. We see in verse 3, Now when the tempter came to him, that is of course Christ, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. This is obviously drawing from the fact that Christ had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. Verse 2. So the devil, seizing upon this, says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And I think... This language of if, not I think, this language of if isn't the devil, you know, having a a measure of curiosity or confusion as to whether Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. 
It is since you are the son of God command that these stones become bread. And so we have this villainous temptation on the part of the devil. And we want to note here that there's nothing sinful in Christ performing a miracle. Right? Of course, this isn't the thing that we're not to to draw from this, that it's uh, sinful for Christ to perform a miracle because Christ, holy, harmless and undefiled, does perform miracles in his earthly ministry. Nor is there anything sinful in the satisfaction of hunger. Um, you know, we aren't not to take, for, take away from this that if we're hungry, we, you know, can't go to the, the bread drawer and the bread, wherever we put our bread and, and have some bread. There's nothing sinful in the performing of miracles. There's nothing sinful in the satisfaction of hunger. But there is everything sinful first in following the devil's advice. Secondly, there is everything sinful in questioning the foundation of faith and the love of God. Remember that Jesus Christ goes about doing good as it is his meat to do the will of the Father. And the Lord God, uh, his Father, is or had spoken these words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. With that, with these words of the Father to the Son of God incarnated, we have the reality that the Son of God is resting upon the Spirit of God that is upon Him and upon His Father for divine care and for the blessings of providence um, according to His assumed humanity. So, it is or there is everything sinful in following the devil's advice, in questioning the foundation of faith and the love of God, and of course the allure of vainglory. You know, vainglory is a, is a good old word. Um, it brings together two things. It brings together, uh, it brings together overconfidence and boasting, and then it brings together empty things. So vainglory is uh, boasting or overconfidence in empty things. And we are to see here that, of course, there's everything sinful in Jesus, were Jesus Christ to perform this miracle as if some, uh, as if the devil is alluring him with pomp or with swagger, pomp and show. But the point here, the chief temptation in view is to put off confidence in divine providence. Remember when we read from Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 5, one of the emphases there is to show forth that God would take care of Israel in the wilderness. So here the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness so that he might first rest upon the providential care of God. The chief temptation by the devil here in view is to put off confidence in divine providence. Turn with me, if you're still in Matthew, to Matthew 27. On this particular point, the putting off of confidence in divine providence, notice the similar language in Matthew 27. You see, after Christ's victory in the wilderness... The devil did not just say, okay, that's, you know, that's it. I can't win. Uh, of course he can't win, but he didn't just say, I can't win. I'm never going to engage in, uh, in, in temptation or seeking to, uh, seeking to cause the Son of God incarnated to stumble. Notice in Matthew 27 at verse 40. Matthew 27 and verse 40. Well, backing up to verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it, in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Remember that in Peter, 
Satan himself was in essence active in trying to in trying to put a stumbling block in front of the Lord, uh, in front of the Lord Jesus Christ that he might not go to Calvary's cross. Remember in Matthew 16, far be it from you Lord that you should go and endure these things. Far be it Lord that you should go and and be crucified, you know, taken by the hands of wicked men delivered uh, to be crucified. And Jesus Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't know the things of God. Here at the crucifixion, we have the same language as the devil in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross, save yourself. The devil is in essence doing the same thing back in back at chapter four, save yourself. Don't endure these hungerings don't endure what you have endured these these 40 days and 40 nights but rather save yourself command that these stones become bread he is seeking to uh, cast to have the son of god incarnated cast off confidence in divine providence it's very interesting here that these three words delivered by the devil uh, are very closely connected to the three propositions or the three words that the serpent brings forth to Eve, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Time may not allow us to look at that. We can consider it afterwards as you uh, enjoy the freedom of reading your Bibles on your own time. But these particular things spoken by the devil here, spoken likewise in a similar fashion uh, to Adam the first. Getting back then to the steadfast response by our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, after the devil tempts with, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread, Christ answers and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our champion responds first with the word of God. Isn't it wonderful language here? It is written. See, Jesus knew the word. He is the word. He knows the word. According to his assumed humanity, he learned, he grew in wisdom uh, as he learned the scriptures. And he answers the devil here with, it is written. It's always a blessed thing for us if we can take, take something and we ought to take much away from this. Remember, though, that the first thing that we take away from this is our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the vanquisher of evil. But it is good to take away from this that we rest upon the revelation of God as we oppose wickedness, as we oppose evil in this lower world, as we seek to oppose the father of lies and murder from the beginning. The Lord Jesus Christ replies with the word of God. And notice as well, he is marked by comfortable dependence upon the providential care of God. We read here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ responds with the word of God, and he is marked by comfortable dependence upon the providential care of God. Remember that that's the devil's point here, to cast Jesus Christ off of that comfortable dependence on the providence of God. But here, the Lord Jesus Christ is resolute. He is steadfast. It's not here that Christ is asserting that our physical bodies, that as our physical bodies live by bread, so our souls are vivified by the word of God, though they are. Um, We ought to say that, that our souls, as we meditate upon the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, our souls are vivified by the word of God, the scriptures. That is most certainly and obviously true. But 
What Christ is emphasizing here is that God, insofar as he upholds all things by the word of his power and upholds his servants the same, he is faithful to preserve by the means he pleases. Remember back in Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 5, because that's a, you don't have to turn back there. I'm just going to make a note to it here. But back in Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 5, we had that same language. So he humbled you, God did the Israelites, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. Now note here, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he talks about providential care. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So it's not so much doctrine that's in view, though our souls are vivified by the word of God and doctrine, but word here insofar as God upholds all things by the word of his power, you don't need to make these stones into bread, son of God incarnated, because the Lord your God will sustain you. Your father will sustain you. John Gill on this particular point notes that God in satisfying man's hunger and in supporting and preserving his life is not tied to bread only, but can make use of other means and order whatever he pleases to answer these ends as by raining manna from heaven, which is mentioned in the passage cited. And also Calvin, the word does not mean doctrine, but the purpose which God has made known with regard to preserving the order of nature and the lives of his creatures. The Lord Jesus Christ had the uh, the promise of providential care, and the Lord Jesus Christ receives that providential care. Now notice a contrast. You see, because we noted, uh, we've been noting as we've been, as we've been moving along here that Jesus Christ is the true Israel who perfects obedience for his people. Well, notice Christ's leaning upon his comfortable resting upon providential care as opposed to Israel in a similar testing. In Exodus 14, we have this particular note at verse 12. Notice the language here with our text in view. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. You see, it, was, it wasn't soon after the Israelites were redeemed by God from out of bondage in Egypt that they complained that they didn't have you know, meat in their pots, flesh in their cooking vessels. They didn't have their bellies filled by, by what they thought was blessing in Egypt. And so they sought to not rest upon divine providence. They complained against the provision of God and His providential care in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, 1-3, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You see the connection here to the Lord Jesus Christ? You see the contrast between sinful, disobedient Israel? You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The devil wants Jesus Christ, the true Israel, 
to have that complaining mind, in essence, of old Israel. The devil wants him not to rest, not to, not to rest blessedly upon the providential care of the Father. But of course, our, our, as we already noted, the steadfast response, the Lord Jesus Christ responds blessedly. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The second temptation then, the devil himself not finding any victory after the first temptation now moves to a second temptation. Notice here, verse 5, then the devil took him up into the holy city set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So what is the devil doing here? Simply, he is calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ to presume upon extraordinary protection. To presume upon extraordinary protection. Again, not to rest upon the promises of God, not to rest upon divine and providential care of his father, but rather to throw himself down and presume upon extraordinary care, protection. Having failed in the wilderness with respect to the first, uh, with respect to the, uh, Israel the first, the devil takes Christ now and not by force to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, seeking to bring him down in casting himself upon not the providence of God, but upon extraordinary protection. Now, there's nothing sinful in availing of divine care, right? There's absolutely nothing sinful in uh, availing of divine care. The, the text here, notice that the, the, the devil ups his game a little bit here. The first, the first temptation, the devil did not quote scripture. The devil didn't quote the word of God. But now with the Son of God incarnate, the champion, of course, in our text, with him responding, it is written, and, and citing the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and other places, we now see the devil upping his game. And he brings forth the text, he shall give his angels charge over you. So we would want to remark that there is nothing sinful of availing of divine care, but there is everything sinful in presuming upon a notion of it and testing it. And that's what the devil is here seeking to do. If you are, again, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Angels have been given charge over you. In their hands they will bear you up, Son of God, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So this villainous temptation comes. Manton notes, we are not to cast ourselves into danger that providence may fetch us up. You know, many things have been, many Christians have had strange notions of, uh, of what providence means. And they have acted against, even though they didn't directly get Manton's, Manton's advice, they have acted against this. We are not to cast ourselves into danger that providence may fetch us off. Just, let's not drive around with seatbelts. Let's not get insurance. Let's not do uh, A through Z because providence will fetch us off. The tempter here ups his assault by repeating the appeal to Christ's divine sonship and then employing the word of God in his ploy. Notice again, Manton, the apostle tells us that Satan is sometimes transformed into an angel of light. And we read that once he took the habit and guise of a prophet, 
And indeed, he deceiveth more by the voice of Samuel than by the voice of the dragon. Uh, Hence he cometh like a divine, with a Bible in his hand, and turneth to the place. Here the enemy of God cometh with the word of God, and disguiseth the worst of actions with the best of words, opposeth God to God, and turneth his truth to countenance a lie. Being refuted by scripture, he will bring scripture too, and pretendeth to reverence that which he chiefly hateth, Christians, you have not to do with a foolish devil who will appear in his own colors and ugly shape, but with a devout devil who for his own turn can pretend to be godly. There are so many things that we need to beware in this lower world as Christians on our sojourn to that heavenly place because evil disguises itself. The devil disguises itself. Heresy and wickedness have the Bible. Heresy and error have the Bible. Heresy, error, wickedness, the devil uses the scriptures, God against God, as it were, to trip up believers and bring them uh, and bring them astray, to trip up the blind, those outside of Christ and bring them into the pit. And we always need to be on guard to know our scriptures, to come to church so that we might learn the Bible, that we might learn of our God, that we might learn of our Christ, that we might learn of his glorious gospel and be able to reply, though not as Christ, though not like Christ, because he is alone unique as the son of God incarnated. But nevertheless, following he, our chief exemplar, using the scriptures properly understood to combat the devil. Notice this. uh, We want to note here that there's nothing wicked, of course, in employing the word of God, but there is everything sinful in applying it to the game of deceit. It's essentially what we just said. If we can wrap that up, there's nothing wicked in employing the word of God, obviously, because we are called to take it in, to love it, to employ it. But there is everything sinful in applying it to the game of deceit. And that's what the devil does here. The steadfast response then comes by the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 7. It's a very simple yet glorious and rich reply. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. There's something very rich here that also connects us to the wilderness wanderings. But we want to note that Christ answers again resolutely with the word of God and the proper meaning, use and application of it. See, the devil distorts the word. Christ, being the Word incarnated, comes and He delivers it in its proper use, in its proper application, answering the villainous temptation with this steadfast response. He sets His trust upon the Father for providential care and for the vindication of His Sonship. You see, He doesn't assert things. He doesn't cast Himself uh, into danger that providence may fetch Him off. He does, not, uh, he does not presume upon extraordinary protection, but he rests upon the providence of God for the vindication of his sonship. We see here the execution of covenantal faithfulness on the part of the Savior in contrast to Old Covenant Israel. That's what we are to see again and again here. Not only the contrast between the last Adam and Adam the first, but the contrast in obedient Christ here, the true Israel, in opposition and in contrast to disobedient Israel. There's some language that connects us to this passage that brings forth this very point. Again, back in Exodus, if you can turn there, you may, or you can listen to me read from Exodus 17. 
As we draw in this passage the connection between the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and the Israel of the Mosaic and Old Covenant, we see in Exodus 17, verses 5 to 7, something that draws this connection to the fore. Notice the language in Exodus 17. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod which you struck the river, with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and that people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, this is something that the devil is in essence saying here. And this language ought to draw us back to Genesis 3. And it ought to bring us forward to Matthew 4.11. The devil is in essence saying to the Son of God incarnate, Is the Lord among you or not? Cast yourself down and presume upon extraordinary protection. But our Lord Jesus, again, he responds with blessedness. He responds with glory. He responds resolutely with the word of God. You can also see in Psalm 78... Psalm 78, and when you get there, you can land yourself at verse 17. But they sin, that is Israel in the wilderness, even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Now before we read on there, this is important here with regards to the Lord Jesus Christ and His victory in contrast to Israel and their disobedience. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. Verse 23, Yet He had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna on them to eat and given them, the, given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. So getting back to the text here, we want to note that in Christ's steadfast response, he continues to rest upon God's promises, God's care, and the, uh, the, the, the providential protection that God gives him in carrying out the perfection of his mediatorial work. So notice lastly then the third temptation before we look at the victory of the incarnate son in, uh, in some measure of haste. The third temptation, as we look at the text here back in Matthew 4 at verse 8, again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Isn't it an amazing thing, this villainous final temptation that the Lord Jesus, uh, that the devil rather, the Lord Jesus endures, that the devil delivers, the devil calling upon God Most High himself to fall down and worship him. We don't know the propositional content of Satan's mind, but we do know that he knew things. 
And he presumes upon whatever he is presuming upon here, upon his own self-exaltation, to call upon the Son of God incarnated to fall down and worship him. It's an unbelievable thing. The devil now transports Christ to an exceedingly high mountain. This very well may be, as some commentators have noted, the same mountain, Mount Pisgah, that God took Moses to when he showed him the land of Canaan. There's something very connected here. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 34, as we move closer towards a close, we want to note this connection here to Deuteronomy 34, 1-4 in this final villainous temptation connected to when Moses is shown the kingdoms of the world. Notice in Deuteronomy 34, beginning at verse 1. Then Moses went up from the, plan, uh, from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over from there. So do you see the connection here? Moses is brought by God up to this mountain. He shows him all of these kingdoms of the world, and he connects it to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Back to our text, the devil takes Jesus to this exceedingly high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You see, Jesus is of Christ, that one promised, that seed of Abraham, who would be the inheritor of the kingdoms of the world. He would be, by God's promise, not the devil's, the one who would be the Lord over all the nations. I'm giving to you, the Lord God says to the Son in Psalm 2, the nations as your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the world uh, as yours. And so the devil here seeks to, if you will, uh, cast off or derail the mediatorial sonship and mission of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in order to make promises that he, of course, can't keep, and really to make promises against the fact that the Lord God, the Son of God, being God from God, light from light, true God from true God, is the one who already has, of course, the nations. But according to his mediatorial work, upon the heels of the perfection of it, the Lord God gives it to the mediator Christ as his inheritance. If you will but fall down and worship me, this was a brazen, irreverent, and blasphemous request by the devil. As Manton notes, it was an impudent demand of Satan to require adoration from him to whom adoration is due from every creature. Cyril of Alexandria speaks similarly. How then dost thou, whose lot is the... So he's speaking to the devil here. Cyril of Alexandria is. How then dost thou, whose lot is the inextinguishable flame, promise to the king of all that which is his own? Didst thou think to have him as thy worshiper, at whom all things tremble, while the seraphim and all the angelical powers hymn his glory? Isn't it an amazing thing? The, the impudence and the, the, the madness of the devil to try and tempt the Lord Christ 
with these words. And Christ delivers that strong and final response. Our champion responds to the tempter's final temptation with these words. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. This draws language, of course, from the old covenant, the covenant that God makes with the people Israel, the covenant that the God who redeemed them from out of bondage in Egypt makes with them. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. The Savior is righteously indignant in the face of opposition to the glory of God. And he delivers this final sword with the uh, this final swing with the sword of the Spirit. He cites Deuteronomy 6, 13, uh, Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. And this furnishes proof of the necessity of the Son's assumption of our nature. What do I mean by that? Well, this language here, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. This final response to the devil speaks richly to Christ's substitutionary obedience. Why? Because we don't worship the Lord our God as we ought. We don't serve the Lord our God as we ought. Prior to being made alive in Christ Jesus, prior to to being brought forth by the deadness of sin to life in Christ, we did not, of course, do that. And even after having been brought forth in our remaining corruption, we do not worship God as we ought with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we do not serve Him. You know, remember that if we are to submit ourselves, if we are to somehow, if we were in, in, uh, in disobedience or in spiritual ambiguity or according to some confession of a perverse Christianity, think that we could find ourselves, make our way to heaven by, the, uh, by our obedience to the law of God. We need to remember that if we seek to submit ourselves to the law of God for our salvation, it must be exact obedience. It must be entire obedience. It must be perfect obedience. And it must be perpetual obedience. There is only one who ever did that. And it's punctuated here in the inauguration of his public ministry by Answering the devil, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Praise God, brethren, that we had one, that we have one who perfected obedience for his people. Praise the Lord God Almighty. Praise Christ, the Son of God incarnated, that unlike Adam, that unlike Israel of old, and that unlike us, he was perfect in his obedience. Perfect in that obedience, that active obedience unto the whole law, and perfect in his passive obedience in his death upon Calvary's cross, wherein he perfectly secures the salvation of a multitude which no man can number. Well, in one minute and 47 seconds, we want to note the victory of the incarnate Son. Notice this blessed language here. After answering Satan once, twice, And thrice, we now have this single verse of victory, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. There is much that is rich in here. He, we see here the passing of this probative or testing episode. Adam failed in the garden. Christ is victorious in the wilderness. Israel failed to obtain the covenant blessings due to their disobedience. Christ here by his covenant obedience excuse me, obtains greater things than those promised blessings. Corpses fell in the wilderness with the Israel episode, 
But here Jesus Christ is victorious in the wilderness, obedient to God the Father. We see the departure of the devil. It's wonderful language here. Just simply, then the devil left him. Then the devil left him. There, are, there are, uh, in, in, the, um, uh, in the other evangelist accounts, it, it speaks to uh, until he could come back at another opportune time. And he does, of course. But we see here victory over, over the devil by spirit-wrought assistance, a determined resolve and confidence in the care of God. And by the word of God, Christ is the victor and the vanquisher of the devil. What a blessed thing, Christ's resolute confidence in God. We, we see so many times in, in the scriptures where Jesus Christ, in the face of such opposition, in the face of his very own people who did not receive him, in the face of, uh, in the face of uh, you know, weak disciples, in the face of such hate and vitriol and, and designs to put to death the Son of God, which ultimately does happen, Christ is nevertheless resolute even unto that cross death. When we think about ourselves, we are not resolute. Sure, we may be resolute at times, but we're not perfectly resolute. Uh, We have times where, of course, we're not resolute. But the one in whom we have our trust was resolute to the very end. And in this case against the tempter, the devil, the father of lies and murder, he perfects resoluteness and confidence in the care of God. And we want to note here as well the ministry of angels. In due time, after Christ had grappled alone with Satan, and not before, and with refreshment, they applaud his triumph and provide comfort. Not at the insistence of the devil and for his own wicked purposes, but in God's timing and for good and divine purposes. This victory upon the mountain and the food provided by the angels. When I say food provided by the angels, we don't see that in the text, but that's probably what happened. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. They fed him. He was hungry. He was victorious over the devil. He did not fall to the devil's temptation to make stones into bread, but now having defeated the devil in this case... And he does in every case, having defeated the devil in this case, the angels come and they feed him, similar to after Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel. So brethren, we need to have confidence in God. We need to have confidence in temptation specifically, but in God generally. As we go about this lower world, as we will be tempted by the devil, we need to put confidence in in our God and we need to rest upon his divine and providential care. We can use as Christ the sword of the Spirit, that we use it and that we use it aright. Christ replies with the Scriptures, rightly interpreted and applied. We are to use, uh, use the Scriptures in like manner, rightly interpreted, rightly understood, and rightly applied. I think we are to appreciate in this text the, unma- the unmatchable richness of our Scriptures. See, this isn't some detached, haphazard account where... Christ is tempted by the devil, and that's it. He is tempted by the devil, but this is a blessed probative episode whereby God tests the victorious Son of God to show forth that He is the last Adam that does that which the Adam the first could not, and He is the true Israel that perfects obedience substitutionarily for His people. The blessed connection that we have, the the, the, the connectedness, the scope of the whole and the consent of all the parts that are seeking to set forth the glory of our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we close in prayer, 
we should have our minds drawn and roused to the appreciation of this victor who went up against the devil in our stead, who was victorious in our stead, who would ultimately continue in the perfection of his obedience unto that blessed cross death, wherein he secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number. Saints, rejoice in him. Sinners, if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, look to him, the vanquisher of evil, the victor over the devil, the one who perfects obedience for his people, and the one who died upon Calvary's cross, rose again for the perfect salvation of a multitude. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you that we can gather in liberty to appreciate the Son of God incarnate and the perfection of his substitutionary work. We thank you for our champion over the devil. And we thank you that that hero born of woman did crush the serpent's head with his heel. We thank you for the victory upon Calvary's cross, for the glory of the resurrection, for the blessedness of the ascension in the current session where our blessed mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, currently intercedes for his people. We do pray that we would avail much of your word, that we would avail of the blessings found only in Christ, and that we would, by your spirit, even now continue in worship, giving praise to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.